High on a hilltop near your home, there stands a dilapidated old mansion. Some say the place is haunted, but you don't believe in such things. You decide to investigate, and you never return. Star Radio, the first episode of a new podcast about horror manga, which I'm pretty sure we're breaking new ground here. I don't think we anyone else has this podcast right now. Now we're hitting a pretty specific demographic. I'm feeling really good about our uh, profits. Yeah, profits. I'm your host, Kyle. You probably don't know me from anywhere. And I have with me, Sean. Hi, I'm your co-host, Sean. You probably don't know me from anywhere either, but let's hope to fix that. Mm-hmm. So, this is a podcast to talk about horror manga, so horror comics from Japan. We might put some manhwa in there at some point, but mostly horror comics from Japan. And the occasional, you know, anime or live-action adaptation, depending on the subject matter. We'll see. Yeah. And there's an adaptation of something we talk about. We'll probably check out that as well. We're starting off this first episode to talk about a manga called Hideout by Masus... Ah. Masasumi? Masasumi Kakizaki. <laughs> I should have practiced that beforehand. I don't believe he's actually done any other horror. This is, I think, just the only horror thing he's ever done. And this is the only thing I've read by him, so... Yeah, nah, I never heard of him outside of this. I think he did some sort of sci-fi thing. Well, that'd be fun. Like, edgy Animorphs type of thing. Oh, good lord. <laughs> because, you know, edgy Animorphs kind of covers quite a bit of manga and comics. And quite a bit of teen fantasies. Yeah. A lot of Animorphs out there. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> to give you a brief overview of Hideout, it's the story of a young couple. The couple's named Seichi and Miki. They're the Kirishimas. They are on a family vacation to reconcile after the death of their young son named Ju. And they're on this far, this getaway island destination. And they're supposed to be a romantic getaway to try to rekindle the, their relationship after that. A fresh start. Yes. That is a phrase they like to say a lot in this comic. <laughs> and it, it's very clear that Miki blames Seiichi for the death of their child, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of resentment from that. So if that sounds vaguely interesting to you, you can go check out on your own. Now we're just going to kind of go into more of the details of that. So, he's trying to kill her. To just get down to rest tax, he took Miki here to kill her. So he can have a fresh start without a wife who blames him. Yeah, that becomes apparent pretty quickly, actually. <laughs> yeah, you'd think that'd be more of a later in the comic reveal, but it's halfway through chapter one. He's blatantly trying to murder her. 
After, yeah, after getting lost in a Jurassic Park rainforest situation at night, things just take a very unsettling turn. And it's not terribly, like, dark or, you know, blood-curdling or anything, but his intentions become clear quite cl- quickly. Yeah, he just reaches his trunk, pulls out a big old monkey wrench, and starts walking to get some more gas for the car with her. So he's trying to kill her in the woods. He pulls out the wrench, threatens, says he's sick of being blamed for all this. He wants a new start in his life and tries to kill her. He chases her into a cave in the middle of the woods, wherein he hits her in the back of the head when a creepy old man with, like, this big two-page spread of just, like, weird-looking bug eyes introduces this crazy old man who, with a machete who tries to attack him at the same time. And this this is probably one of the things that stood out for me the most in this manga, are those full-page spreads. Just the de- level of detail and the framing in some of them is fantastic. Yeah. The design for the creepy old man, who has no name, so he'll just be called the creepy old man, is really good. He has He's just kind of this crazed, like, wild man of the wilderness with, like, dried eyes. Like, you can always, it looks like his eyeballs are kind of cracked. Like, they're dried o- over. Yeah, and he looks like a mas- like he looks like a, you know like a zombie or a white, really emasculated, dry, leathery skin, but these just bulging, large, penetrating eyes, and it's a really, really ev- you know evocative image anytime he's on the frame. Mm-hmm. So he's there. Um, he's so Seiji gets in a brief fight with the creepy old man, uh, kind of drives him off for a little bit. Um, while there's also a creepy-looking child who has the same weird skim deformities as the old man, who shows up and starts dragging away Miki's body. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Seiji's kind of trying to get away from the crazy old guy, and he falls, finds a little hatch and falls down to some sort of underground bunker. And this was another one of those panels where I thought it again, just the illustration in the frame, and you get him in like the top third, and the, the bunker hallway kind of spreads down towards, you know, doors on each side. And it's, it just really show you know, kind of invokes the sense of massiveness, but also the unknown. And actually, as a side note, this manga has a lot of cliches in it, you know, as far as horror goes. But it kind of surprised me consistently. Like, as soon as their uh, dead child was brought up in the beginning, and then, you know, we see this child just staring at him here... Before he falls in, I was like, oh, okay, is this going to be like some weird, you know, is this, you know, illusion of him, you know, seeing his dead child? He just had that argument with his wife about on whom the responsibility falls. And it actually develops far beyond that and nothing like that at all. Yeah, it has, it does trade a lot of uh, horror tropes. I mean, the dead, dead children is a very common backstory to horror characters or dead or missing children. Mm hmm. So uh, he's down in this bunker. Uh, he's he's regaining consciousness and falling down this big old hole. And I want to point out that at this point, like every time, like when these kind of cutaways happen, like he loses consciousness here, we start going into flashbacks of what their life was like before everything happened. Mm. Yeah. So it goes into how he's losing work. He's not got much money. He but he's not telling his family about it. He's just acting like everything's normal. Oh yeah, and we should point out he's a, a writer. Another horror cliche. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if the publishers that we see in these flashbacks are to be believed, he's not a very good one. Right. Yeah, he keeps losing jobs, and later on one of them just explicitly says, look, 
no one is ever going to hire you. You're just not that good. Especially because, yeah, he's like, hey, how many other, you know, editors have you shown this to? And he's like, well, you're the fourth. And he's like, well, yeah, no one's going to publish this. Yeah, the other three were just too nice to say it out loud. <laughs> Ooh, um, one thing I do want to talk about, just because we are getting here. Quite a few manga do this, but it is one of my favorite kind of ways to pace something. Is you get a lot of frames of silence and just, you know, action. Like you would in a film where, you know, characters just walking, exploring the area. And between those uh, frames, you'll get his inner monologue. Yeah, well, it's actually his inner monologue. It actually opens with, uh, like, a journal found in the woods, and it's, they conceive as it's something he wrote. Oh, you're yeah, you're absolutely right. So you're, it has these little cutaways of, like, you know, he's looking down the shaft, and then he's talking, you know, somehow he's, like, gripped with fear. And right. He's, you know, not sure what's, what's ahead of him. Mm-hmm. The unknown is, is frightening him. Yeah, I just I, I really like that as a way to kind of push the narrative along in you know manga like this. I think it works really well. So he he wakes up down at the bottom of the shaft and he's looking down this like filthy hallway. It looks like it's some sort of bomb shelter. Mm-hmm. So he's walking down the hallway, seeing like these dead bodies just sitting in the rooms off to the side, and he hears another another uh, voice in there. There's a woman who doesn't look horribly. Well, she's chained up to the wall and there's barely any clothing left, but she's not, like, horribly injured or anything. And she tells him that he's, like, the ninth person who's been brought down here, and the others are all dead. Mm-hmm. But we find out there is one still alive. Yes. So, uh, he gets hit in the back of the head by the machete man, and he's dragged into a little, in one of the side rooms and tied up, and he sees another person in the same predicament as him missing a arm and a leg, I believe. I think, yeah, I want to say he's missing all four limbs, but yeah, he's like cut off at the knee and the elbow on what you can see. Yeah, and he's, you know, begging for death. And the uh, implication is that the old man is eating these people down here. So while that's going on, we have more cuts back, and it's it's the same basic trend of him being turned down for things. Miki is spending a bunch of money because he keeps saying everything's fine, so she just keeps spending the money. How do you feel about like the characterization of Miki in these flashbacks? Um, well, that's not just Miki, but when you know when it began, you're like, okay, you know, couples reconciliation, tropical trip, et cetera, et cetera. But as these uh, flashbacks go on, you realize n- neither of these characters are very good people. Yeah, like Miki seems kind of vapid, especially considering. Um, Seiichi, you know, kind of perpetrated the lie that, oh yeah, I've got a job, I'm making money, so he's enabling her. Um, There's one scene where she comes back with June, the child, from shopping, and uh, this is shortly after um, he gets rejected by the fourth editor earlier in the story, and she, you know, the frame zooms in on the shopping bag she has, and there's like Gucci and a bunch of other high-end brands, and she just, you know, she She's just going all in on their supposed wealth, and you see frames of him like checking their bank balance, and it's just dwindling and dwindling. And yeah, it doesn't paint her in a very good light, and it paints him as kind of cowardly to try, um, you know, fess up to the situation. Yeah, he's got like that stereotype of like you know the Japanese sarman. Like you know, he just has to put in the hours. He doesn't want to like he's he's supposed to be providing for his family, so he doesn't want to admit that he can't. Right, and he doesn't want to disturb, you know, the idea of the supposed lifestyle they have. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so there's a lot of that. I, I feel like they go, it goes a little bit far with Mickey, like, she's like, the mo- she gets a little bit to the most, like, generic bad woman in a story, you know what I mean? Yeah, especially with some of the developments later on. Yeah. So yeah, he's locked up in under there, he's watching the other guy rot away as he's, we get another one of those really good uh, spreads of just, like, the eyeballs of the man through the... Uh, slots in the wood in front of him, so it's just like this big spread of just the creepy old man's eyes just looking at him as he's like screaming. Oh yeah, it's a really good image. Holy hell. Yeah, I I think really, honestly, Hideout's biggest biggest thing he has going for it is just those drawings of his face. Like The author did a really good job of just drawing that. Mm -hmm. It's got a really good look to it, and it's always a really good image of just this guy in the dark, shrouded by darkness with giant bug eyes staring. And it's not only um, the nameless man, too, because uh, at moments of, um, you know, anger and uh, later on what you could call insanity, Seiichi kind of develops those features as well. Mm -hmm. And just the slow transition each time you get like, you know, a half page or a full page of those just... Mwah, beautiful. Yeah, it's mostly expressed through like just very visible veins getting closer to the irises. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he's like screaming that he can't deal with this anymore when he sees a wrench and and walks Miki, who's still alive. Turns out the little boy had brought her down here, and uh, she's still alive and is talking about how. Well, now she's going to kill him. Oh, and we should point out, um, this little boy wants to see his mother. Yes, he keeps asking to see his mom. And it's just this creepy little boy who looks very similar to the old man. And, uh, yeah, he's got the same creepy eyes, but he's not violent. And the implication is that the old man, um, I think Seiichi actually has the conversation with the little boy, too, that the uh, old man is not violent towards women in general. Right. Just Mm -hmm. men. So, yeah, uh, Miki's here yelling at him, blaming him for June's death. Just freaking out how he can't do anything for himself, can't even kill her properly. And just hits him with a wrench over and over again. Yeah, he takes a beating. Yeah, and, he, and she just uh, yeah, she just starts beating with There's some good panels of just her violently hitting him like good uh, sense of motion as she just whacks him into the corner of the panels over and over again. So yeah, she's beating him and tells him like, hey, you're gonna I'm gonna get out of here alive. She says she'll just. I uh, think she'll just like she's like I'll I'll sleep with him. I can use that to get him, take him out, and then get out of here. And I'll just tell everybody that you fell down a hole. And then I'll have a fresh start. Yes, yeah. She specifically says that I will have the fresh start. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to bury my memories of everything here. I'd be like this never happened. So there's a there's a big thing of them both wanting to just kind of bury their mm-hmm. pasts. And it's again at this point she, you know, again blames uh, Seiichi for June's death. And I think it's at this point where we start getting a clear image of how exactly June died. Yes, this is when they kind of go into that some more. Yeah, she says that she's going to get a fresh start. And then I think that's when we have the cut to him. He's at this point, like, begged for a job from somebody. So he's actually, like, doing it better now. He's, like, he's, like, throwing himself on the ground, begging an old editor for the simplest of writing jobs just so he can have some money. Yeah, he's like editing manuscripts or something, and he gets accepted for it. Yeah, it's it's very low level, but it's, yeah, at least, you know, he's, get, he's getting money again. So he's sitting there with his headphones on, working hard at work, 
when Miki says that he's gonna, she's gonna go out and asks him to take care of June while uh, the wander's out to dry. And he doesn't hear a word of this. Yeah, he's listening to his headphones. Yeah, and Miki's going on how great it is with her friend about to have like a husband who works from home. Some more of that. Miki's not likable thing. <laughs> yeah, it's so <laughs> great to have to someone at home so I can go shopping. Mm-hmm. So anyway, June sits around alone for a little bit and then notices the wander and wants to go be helpful and grab it himself and he stands on a stepladder and falls over the balcony of their apartment to his death. Yep. And uh, it takes a while for uh, Seiji to notice that any of this happened. He's still working. He, I think he finishes all the manuscripts, calls his boss, walks out and notices that June's missing. You get like a little shot, I think, of like part of June's body on the floor and then we go into that big zoom in on one of his eyes like you were talking about earlier. Yep. Just the sheer look of terror in his face. Yeah, because he runs out to the uh, balcony because, of course, the laundry is being, you know, hanged to dry over the balcony. And you just get this nice little zoom in of, uh, like, June's arm with some blood around it. And then, of course, that zoom in on his eye. And I don't remember if we go back to the tunnel then or if it goes on to the funeral for after that. I believe it goes back to the tunnel. Um, it does a lot of cutting back and forth. It does. Like it uses it uses the cutting back to for transitions. Like, okay, here here's Deb cut back to here. You know, um, he's sitting there screaming. It's a lot of his narration again, without much mm. other anything else going on. He's talking about how he wanted like a regular life. That's all he wanted. He didn't want anything fancy. Small family, happy, nothing too fancy, just a simple life. Him, his wife, his son, living in a simple apartment, being happy. And how he's, he feels it's really unfair he couldn't even get that. Yep. And then that's when I think the uh, creepy little boy comes by uh, to talk to him, asking after his mom, because he says that Seiji smells like her. And this is, again, it, you know, evoking, hey, is this... Again, I was At this point, I was still like, oh, hey, is this like some, you know, thing that he's, you know, seen June in this child, or what's going on here? Yeah, and earlier, actually, the woman he found chained to the wall did ask after the little boy's well-being. So, the implication is that uh, the old man raped this woman and had this child who's, yep. like, hideous and wrinkled. He, like, he's, he, he has a face of a very, very old man and the same giant bug eyes. Like, yeah, they're nearly identical. Yeah, the old man and the boy's faces are drawn with more detail than anyone else in the comic. Like, everyone else has more of a generic kind of flatter anime face. Yep. But they have a much more detailed wrinkles and, like, messed up teeth and everything. Mm-hmm. And if I remember correctly, like, they're, they have, like, claw-like fingernails and everything. They just look a bit more monstrous. But the boy, like, is a bit, he's a bit softer because he doesn't, he doesn't, he's never framed in a more, in an aggressive manner. No, he's, he's, hor- you know, he's grotesque, but seemingly innocent. Mm-hmm. Not really sure how he can talk as well as he does, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the old man kind of just glares. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't really say any words. He's more of a force than a character. So, um, the little boy unties Seiji, who finds uh, a, a machete. I think it's the same machete the old man's been using. And says he's going to go free the little boy's mother. The best way he has to do that is to kill the boy's father. So... He asks him to take him to the father. So that's when he starts putting on a raggedy old 
raincoat, like the one the old man has been wearing this whole time, and carries mm-hmm. a machete like him, so now he's evoking the same appearance as the old man this whole time. Yeah, and it's from this point on, kind of half his face is obfuscated by shadow as well, so anytime you see him at this point onward, it's just that manic giant eye. Mm-hmm. So he's also talking more and more about how he wants to bury all the past and make a new life again. And then, yeah, I think at that point is when we start cutting back to the funeral of June. Everyone at the funeral is blaming him. Absolutely everyone. Yeah, especially Miki's in-laws. Yeah, Miki's entire family is just like, you killed my grandson. Not only are you a pathetic writer, you killed my grandchild. He's going on about how he was a mistake to let his daughter marry him in the first place. And one thing I did find interesting was that I think it was the father-in-law who told him, there's no way someone like you who grew up without a family can make a happy family. Mm-hmm. So implying that Chi-Chi's grew up probably orphaned or something. You know, he's never actually had that family, and that's why he was so obsessed with the thought of having this this ideal of a family. Yeah, like he, it, it sounded like you know, the nuclear family was an idea that he w- longed for just because he didn't have one. Or the background isn't quite, you know. Di- you know, divulged into, but yeah, it, I actually really like that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like, I mean, he's just staring at him, blaming him for everything, saying, you can try to blame him on anybody, but he was with you, you killed him. And then, yeah, Seiichi's like, well, I, I didn't know I was working. <laughs> yeah, and then we cut to Miki and the old man and the uh, throes of passion. Yeah. Probably the most unsettling scene in the manga. <laughs> Yeah, not a great, not a fun scene. And it's not even that revealing. It's just the shad, you know, the shadowing and um, the sound effects that are being used, and just the idea because you know this old man has been drawn in such detail up until this point. You're just like, ooh, yeah, like you get some good shots of his face. His wrinkles are—they look like his skin scrapped everywhere. And as that's happening, Shiji comes up behind and just stabs the man with the machete. And then he has this big talk to Miki about how, let's just bury the past, it's time to do this, let's get rid of it all. There's a struggle between him and the old man, because he didn't kill him one hit, there's a lot of, there's a big back and forth between them. Mm-hmm. As Miki runs out, and they scuffle a bit, and it's now this kind of chase between the three of them. And then Seiichi kind of pushes the old man back, so you get a bit of just Miki and Seiichi running through a tunnel. And at that point, they're, I believe that's when they're kind of running towards the light. Yeah, I think so. I think right there's actually when the little boy uh, starts telling him that he wants his mommy, mm-hmm. and he starts seeing him as June completely at that point. Yeah, because the little boy actually, I and mean, again, this could just be a coincidence because it's a young child in a Japanese manga, but the first time you see June, you realize that the child has the exact same haircut as uh, June did. We also have some more flashbacks there of Cal. I think Shaiji's like, hey, let's have another kid. That fixes all relationship problems. Yeah, and Miki's like, um, no, how about you just work really hard for me? So, at that point, the intention is to make free to view Miki even worse than you have at this point. Like, it makes it look like Miki's this complete monster, which she kind of is, but... But Seiji's no saint either. Yeah, but it, it very much frames it right there as, wow, Miki's the worst. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they're going towards the light in this tunnel. The old man has some sort of bayonet. Oh, this is one of my favorite scenes. Yeah, she, she just got his torch and his machete. He's bringing the little boy up. And I think at this point, I don't think she, Miki has a wrench anymore, but she's like escaping out of the. She's like the furthest up in the tunnel. 
Yeah, she's like crawling up a slight incline, and the old man just comes up and bayonets her in the back of the head. Yeah, like right through the eye. It's a really good panel. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, she's like yelling, she's the one who survived, and then shunk right through the eye. And the old man's screaming, and so Shaichi takes the boy to the separate bunker that has his mother in it. And as he's getting there, the old man jumps on him, and they start to struggle as he tells the little boy to go into the tunnel, and he calls him June at this point. Yep. So it's like, don't worry, June, Daddy will be right behind you. Yeah, so it's at this point where you can really tell uh, Seiji's starting to slip. Yeah. There's a really good panel of the old man just, like, falling from the ceiling. Like, you can, he has, like, like, white eyes. He's drawn a lot more stylistically than he had to this point. Uh, and he's just, like, leaping from the ceiling. Yeah, just, just trying to stab him. Yeah, just like a descending monster. It's fantastic. Then there's a big fight between the two of them. It once again reiterates that he wants to bury the past and start all over again. Mm-hmm. During this whole fight scene, it's just him talking about how he wanted to provide a family that he's just reiterating all that stuff there, saying it wasn't his fault. Uh, he didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. And all this having it cuts back to more flashbacks and talking to his in-laws about wanting to file for a divorce. At which point, his father-in-law calls him a coward and then kind of reiterates, yeah, you know what, it's probably better that my wife isn't with you know, such a dipshit like you. Yeah, and he's like, I'm, our lawyers will see you in court and you're going to lose everything. What little you have. Oh, yeah, yeah. He throws in this great line of, yeah, being responsible for a child's death and not providing for her will probably make for some great compensation. Yeah. It's kind of between these fights and talking about wanting to change everything in these flashbacks. And then the flashbacks reveal that and I thought this scene a little bit went a little bit too far. It kind of reveals that he had murdered his uh, in-laws. He went to visit them, saying he's going to go on a trip. And they're like, well, weren't you going to try to divorce? What's with this about a reconciliation trip? And he has a big knife. He says, I wish it said yes to the divorce, since kills them. Yeah, you, you don't see him kill them, but you get this fantastic flash, uh, you know, flashback scene of the mother-in-law and the father-in-law's body up against the wall, and there's a really nice touch of, like, a bloody handprint dragging down on the wall behind him, so it looks like there was quite a struggle. Mm-hmm. It was not a pleasant death. Right. And so, has him killing the old man, talking about how everyone needs to just, just leave him alone, he just wanted to live a normal life, and now he just needs a new family. And cue to the woman chained up. Right. So he goes down there, like his narration saying he's, you know, he's talking about how that old man probably didn't want to hurt anybody. He's just been living here for decades. He just wanted to raise a family like he did. Mm-hmm. Now he's framed in the same kind of opposing manner that the old man has to this point. He tells the little boy not to be afraid anymore. The woman thinks that he's suddenly get free. And you actually see, yeah, you see this really deceptive panel of him unchaining the woman from the wall, and it later kind of zooms out to re- uh, reveal he unchained her from the wall, but he still has the chain going to the collar around her neck, so he's holding there while she's sitting there like a dog. Mm-hmm. It's a very possessive image. Yeah, and he says he'll do anything for his wife and son, and then that's where her face kind of falls. She realizes that. Nothing's changed. <laughs> yeah, she's not going to get to leave. It implies here, or the implication I got was that he kills them both at this point, because he starts getting very upset that she calls him a monster. And then we have this panel of just, like, them silhouetted against nothing, just, like, him holding the machete, and then a two-page spread of him freaking out. He's got the old man eyes almost at this point, holding up the machete. Yeah, that was the impression I got as well. Yeah. I think he just killed them both in a rage, is the impression I got. Then we kind of have a cutaway to just a young couple, 20, 30 years later, maybe. Mm-hmm. 
several decades, enough to make him as crazy looking as the old man. So there's a couple in the woods who whose car dies. They find his journal. They walk to the edge of the cave, and you get a shot of Seiji's eyes, and he's got the crazy old man eyes, except one of them's even worse, I believe. It just ends on this big two-page spread of his crazed eyes. And the cycle begins again. Yeah, and he says, like, I'm Seiji, and you're my family. Yep, come into the cave. So yeah, it's a really short, you know, quick, easy read, but um, as we've said a few times, I think the illustration and the framing is what really makes it memorable. Yeah, the story itself is fairly generic. The cycle of violence of of, of a father figure is a very common horror trope. Mm-hmm. It's not poorly done here, I don't think. I think it goes a little bit too far towards the end. I think Miki set up a bit too villainously, like... Her just saying. She's really a car- yeah, she becomes almost a caricature yes. of a caricature at the end there. Yeah, like up till the point where she's going start ranting at him about how he has to work for her benefit. From now on it was alright. I mean she was a bit vapid and self centered up to that point, but she's still kind of a believable person. But then she kinda of becomes a cartoon villain. Yeah, she's like, I didn't even want a child. You shouldn't you know, you need to work for me. Yeah, then she she like murders the in laws and he becomes more of a cartoon villain. Yeah, and it does a nice job of retroactively making their stop in the jungle initially more sinister, but I don't think it was necessary. Yeah, I think you could have just left it out. He went on the trip planning on killing his wife. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like those weight reveals for, for both their characters is a little bit too much. I think it would have been fine if he cut both those out. Yeah, I think it was a little long, but I think it, they did. I, I think all of his failed attempts at publishing, and then him working, and then oh, one thing we did forget to mention is part of uh, we did mention he loses his job, but it's actually really clinical, but very again very Japanese, and honestly, you know, just corporate in general. After June's funeral, he gets voicemail from his editor saying, "Hey, we understand your loss, but we can't wait on a manuscript. We will, you know, find someone else." And that's a good, it, it's a good driving force for everything that he's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, I think the flashback probably should have stopped at the one where he, his father-in-law tells him, like, we'll take you to the cleaners mm-hmm. and he's sort of divorce, because that gives him the motivation he needs without kind of going into he's some sort of serial killer territory. Yeah, may, I definitely keep the flashback where, you know, where he says, hey, I am going to try and reconcile this because it makes it seem, you know, makes him seem normal. Doesn't have any, you know, doesn't make him seem like a total supervillain. He's just like, hey, you're right, you know, everyone called me a coward, blah, blah, blah. And it actually feeds into, you know, him kind of having no spine, according to both, you know, Mickey's uh, family and Mickey herself. Just, he's like, okay, whatever, you mentioned a lawyer, I'm going to try and fix things. And then let it unplay as it does, you know, play as it does. I I like it overall. I think, I think it's, its best features are its art and just kind of, the basic it's it's a basic horror story but it's done fairly well for what it is i just think that it goes a little bit too far towards the end yeah definitely could have, for as short as it is it could have been reined in a bit yeah and also the cover for this is fantastic it's like crazy old man's ripping through his fingernails and cover out. You, you see his eyes and there's like a bloody handprint on the back and the fold the fold out insert is like a happy family photo of seiji miki and june yeah it was definitely a fun read, and I I would recommend people read it. It, it you know it's short, you won't waste any time reading it. Not the deepest of things, but right. definitely fun. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to see him go back to more horror. Yeah, definitely. See what he because in the afterward he says that is it is the only horror work he's ever done. So 
I think that's a pretty good first try at it, for sure. Oh, for sure. And, yeah, it'd be nice if uh, he is he w- did ever go back. Is he active, or... Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Because this came out in 2010. Right. And it never got published in English, uh, only out in Japan. And then it came out in German, Spanish, and French, surprisingly. So there's some uh, scanlation. Uh, it looks like he's got one going on right now, which is some sort of fictional Rome Coliseum monster fighting thing. Interesting. So looks like he mostly does that kind of shonen kind of action thing. Well, let's hope he comes back to the genre someday. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what his future work would be. So overall, I think I'm, I'm with you. It's definitely worth a read. It's quick, easy, and you get the get some like, neat drawings out of it. Yeah, and it's not overly violent. It's not overly sexual. Um, it, it's a little violent. I mean, you, you, see, you see people get stabbed. You, she gets stabbed through the back of the head through her eyeball. Yeah, but that's like the most implicit violence. The rest is like, okay, this man's getting stabbed and, you know, there's flying blood. But That's true. And like even the, the sex is like very much just like this guy is on top of this woman. Right. You don't see any nudity. You don't see any shriveled, crackled penis or anything like that. Like good horror, a lot of implication. Right. So yeah, I think it's definitely worth reading, and uh, I'm glad we read this one first. I think it's a good intro one for people who haven't read much horror manga. It's a good kind of... It's not too weird, and it's a bit... And it focuses on some of the good things about like how Japanese horror comics typically look at things from an artistic perspective. Absolutely, and it's really, it like, the way it's presented, it's just something that a lot of Western audiences can relate to. I mean, it's basically Lost in the Woods, you know, Lost in the Woods slasher film that, and, you know, evolves a little bit outside of the norms for that, for, you know, all the familial and cyclical stuff. Next time, we're going to be talking about 6,000. Yep. Which, do you want to give a brief introduction to that? Yeah, so 6,000, The Deep Sea Madness, also known as Rokusen, by uh, Nokuto Koike, is um, it's a manga I read years ago, and I'll be rereading it before our next podcast, but it reminds me a lot of kind of like Event Horizon or The Abyss. General overview is the scientist is called to a facility where there was an accident several years ago, and the corporation he's with, you know, sends in some hired suits to go with him. There's, you know, He's there as an analyst. There are other scientists there. And as he delves deeper and is like cordoned off from certain sections, you know, preventing him from doing his job of an investigation, you find out things aren't quite what they seem. And it actually gets quite gruesome, a little bit psychological. I think it's a really fun, just gruesome, pulpy romp. I've also read 6,000 Forts. It's been a while. I think it was a couple years ago for me as well. Uh, I remember enjoying it. It's a bit longer than this one. It's about four volumes, I believe, 22 chapters or something like that. So it's about not, it's, a, it's longer than Hideout, but not super long. Yeah, I think each chapter is a, a bit longer as well compared to Hideout's not, uh, chapters, but um, we'll probably be doing it in one podcast. It will be a longer podcast if we do. If not, we can split it up. Um, but yeah, look forward to that. Absolutely. Anyway, that was Hideout. Uh, let us know what you think on. Uh, I assume we'll have a Twitter account by the time I post this, so. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to find one, because I looked it up, and there already is a Hellstar radio oh, without yeah. it. There's a Hellstar radio and a Hellstar underscore radio, neither of which are great, but we'll, we'll figure something out for that. I forgot about that one. One of them's like some sort of German radio station or something. 
like internet I, one. I think that, I think that's the Hellstar radio one. Yeah, it had like some German like biker looking symbol for its avatar, if I correct, uh, if recall. Yeah, and it hasn't been updated in eight years or something. Ah, <laughs> uh, we're late to the party. <laughs> oh well. Yeah, we'll we'll figure that out. Anyway, there's a hellstarradio.com. You can go there. I'll make sure we're on iTunes by the time this gets posted up. So, hellstarradio.com. It'll probably look like something by the time this goes up. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Sean. I'm Kyle. This is Hellstar Radio. Signing off. Nine, seven, one, five.